0: Welcome to the Abuan Chronicles podcast. This podcast is hosted by five black Muslim women. Hafsa, Ikran, Istahir, Sahra, and Umakhir. Khair. This is Ikran, your part-time hype girl and full-time resident of Toronto, the City of Champions. Join us every month as we talk about our personal experiences, pop culture, identity, and politics.
1: This is for my Muslim girls and my Muslim girls only. Or to the Muslim girls who haven't had their first kiss yet. <laughs> uh, okay. Why wow, is this so embarrassing to even, like, ask? But, oh my god, this is so embarrassing. But when you're kissing someone, like, what do you do? No, like, honestly, like, like, you're kissing someone and, like, like, who leans in first? Like, and, like, when they do lean in, like, do you, like, um, like, do you, <laughs> like, do you just stand there and <laughs> <laughs> Please don't laugh at me. It's I know it's sad. Okay.
2: Assamic everybody, welcome to another episode of the Abuan Chronicles podcast. Um today we have a special one for you and a guest on My name is Hafsa, usually on this podcast, along with Ikran Nistahin, and our guest today is Angelica Lindsay-Ali. She is a certified sexual health educator, an expert on intimacy and relationships, and a researcher and author. Thank you so much for joining us, Angelica.
3: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about about yourself and what got you into this field specifically?
3: Sure. Um, So I converted to Islam um, at the age of 23, and I'm very intentional about using the word convert as opposed to revert, um, I made an intentional choice to become a Muslim. I was raised in a Christian family. My mother is a clinical psychologist. My father was a substance abuse therapist. So I was surrounded by behavioral health my entire life. And once I became a Muslim, I, because I was not raised in a traditional Muslim household, it was somewhat of a protective factor. I accepted Islam as an adult. And so I had access to Routes of knowledge about everything related to Islam, and as such, um I had a a big interest in public health at the time. I had volunteered um, at a clinic in Detroit, Michigan, when I was in high school in college. I was very much interested in reproductive health. And so I began looking into what does Islam say about sexuality. And I was very pleased to find that Islam is actually a very sex positive religion in that it's very prescriptive. About how we are to approach physical intimacy. So when I began working professionally in public health, it just seemed like a good way to meld both my spiritual and religious scholarly pursuits with my professional education and that's how the village anti was born
2: sounds cool so like you mentioned that you know it's, there's a lot in islam in the text when it comes to talk about sexual health and like how it's sex positive and all of that but in comparison to a lot of muslim communities how do you find that contrast to be or is there a contrast
3: so i think a lot of Muslims shy away from discussions around sexuality because we misinterpret what modesty is and what modesty means. So modesty in terms of dress, in terms of behavior, in terms of speech is definitely something that all Muslims should partake in, whether you're male or female. However, um, there should be no modesty when learning about your religion And as, you know, as people of faith who strongly encourage marriage, we strongly encourage, you know, reproduction. Lots of Muslims have really big families. We don't talk about it enough. And so we focus on sort of the minutiae of, of the religion. Um, you know, how high are his pants cuffs? Um, how tight is her hijab? Um, did you use enough water when you make wudu and all of those things they are great, but also, you know, have you given your spouse your full rights? What does the prophet Muhammad sallallahu say about interacting with one spouse? So I think, um, the sex positivity in Islam has been overshadowed by, um, a reliance on rules and regulations, um, which really is not what the totality of the deen is. You know, Islam is not just a religion. It's a total way of life. So we sort of pushed everything that's fun to the to the margins and only focused on the rigidity of the religion. And I think that's a disservice.
2: I find it really interesting like that it's not really only Islam that's that's like this a lot of Abrahamic religions and religions in general when it comes to things to do with sexual education and sexuality we kind of shy away from it you know cover under the guise of modesty and hiding away from these things and knowing that Islam is a religion where you know it kind of covers everything to do with life as opposed to just belief in God. The one thing that I was really interested in is like, we always have these issues when it comes to our community as to when to introduce this subject. When do we start talking about, you know, sex and, and, and women's health and sexual health at what grade, at what age. And, you know, this is usually a a huge debate when it comes to introducing these topics in you know, school curriculums and all of that. So when do you think we should start approaching the subject with
3: kids? So I'm I'm the mother of four, and I actually just completed an 18-month cohort with the University of Chicago School of Medicine um Institute on Islam and Medicine. And my winning research project was actually about um creating a culturally centered uh and religiously guided sexual health curriculum for young Muslims. Um my children from the age of Sava so San, who's five, he knows the proper names for his body parts. He knows not to, you know, run around the house after he jumps out of a bubble bath, um, and, and, you know, be naked in front of his sisters. He knows to protect his aura. I think it's important to start children off as soon as they understand that their bodies are different than their siblings or different than other children. It's important to start teaching them the proper anatomical names because what this does, it's not about sex. When you say sexual health, people think that you're teaching kids about sex. You're not teaching them about sex. You're teaching them about their body parts. And part of knowledge is empowerment. And empowerment is also protection. So if my son knows that there are certain parts of his body that he should not expose to other people, other than mommy and daddy, if they're helping him bathe, um, then If someone were to try to look at him in that place or try to touch him in that area, he knows that this is something that is wrong. So information in in that way um, becomes power. So I've, I've started all of my children off right about at the age of four or five, just with educating them about their bodies, how to keep their bodies clean. Now, in terms of having conversations that are more directly veering in, not, still not the sex conversation, but veering into sex, with girls, you have to start younger than boys just because um, we have all of this genetically modified food. We have lots of environmental factors. Our girls are entering puberty a lot earlier than they used to. So I have friends whose eight, nine year old daughters are experiencing puberty. If that young girl is a Muslim and she's praying and she starts to have her menstrual cycle, then she becomes religiously responsible. So she needs to then further her information, not only knowing about her body parts, but then what are the types of discharges that she might have? Um, how should she clean herself? How should she make a ghusl? All of these things are important. Now, my son is 15. When he turned 13, we began to have the sex conversation because At middle school, right around sixth or seventh grade, at least in America, that is the age where schools start teaching classes um, called human growth and development. They have different terms that are used and, you know, they teach it from a Western lens. They teach it from a lens that may not be Islamically centered. So as parents, we have to make sure that we arm our children with this is what our dean says about Relationships. This is what our dean says about sexual relationships. Um, and so for me, that started at about age 13. But I'll tell you that children will let you know when they're ready, if you have an open relationship with them, because they'll start to say, mommy, I heard this thing. Or, you know, I saw this thing or my friend showed me this. Because whether we shield our children in our homes, you know, with homeschool and have them in Islamic school programs, they're going to be exposed. So I always tell parents, you have to teach them. Before they learn and you have to teach them the way that we teach in Islam before they start to get all of these other ideas about sex from outside. So I would say at age three or four, like age four or five, start teaching them about their own bodies, how to take care of their bodies once they start to enter into puberty. So girls, it could be as young as age eight. It could be as old as age 15. Start teaching them about their bodies, the different types of fluids that their bodies can emit. For boys, when they start to enter puberty, when they start to have nocturnal emissions and things like that, begin to teach them about those things. Because sexuality is something that is unconscious. It's not something that you know they're intentionally seeking out. But You want to make sure that they know that what they're experiencing is normal and it's all a part of Allah's design.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. I think that's really important. Right now, at least in Toronto, I know like a lot of parents who like even if they're being taught sex ed in school, which is, you know, the Western way of teaching it, a lot of them will kind of have them removed from those classes. So they're not getting that perspective and they're not getting the Islamic perspective because parents are not teaching them at home. And like you said, they're going to find out some other way. And then they kind of have like a skewed sense of, you know, their bodies and what sex is. And I think it's really important that we're teaching younger kids from you know like you said teaching them about their bodies and then kind of you know teaching them more as they grow and i think it's a process and it's not something that you know you just sit one day and give them all the information what i'm curious about is what are the questions that you usually get from youth and adults who kind of maybe didn't learn this as they were growing up and now are kind of asking questions do you have common recurring themes and things that people are usually asking you
3: uh, i get a lot of questions from adult women about like what different body parts are for. Um, and if their body parts are normal. Uh, so one, one example would be the labia, right? So the vaginal lips, a lot of women will say, well, I, you know, my husband says that I'm not attractive down below because mine are longer or they're uneven or, or what have you. Arming women with the knowledge that everyone's body parts look different and no matter what your body part looks like, it's normal is very empowering. That's a question that comes up a lot. Another question that comes up a lot is the question about when you should start um talking to your children and then another issue um that also comes up is just asking like what are the proper names and you know what does this thing do what does why do we have this part why do you know why why does this look like this what does this so just basic anatomy and sometimes this comes from women who have had multiple children i have two friends um each of them had been married for more than a decade each of them had five children and they did not know where urine emitted from they were not sure if urine came from the vaginal canal or if it came from the urethra one of them did not know exactly where the urethra was on her body so i think it highlights the fact that these are not conversations that we have often. And one of the women have been raised Muslim, but one of them have been raised in a Christian household. So it's not, it's not just Muslims who have this issue. Um, there are also Christians and, and Jews and people of a variety of different backgrounds who are just not having this uh, information as they're growing up.
1: Um, do you think that we lack accessibility to resources? Because I feel like, like can't said, like growing up, we you're kind of insular in your family. And if your family doesn't talk to you and your school, you're basically taken out of those classes. You're left to your own resource, your own tools. And so you go online and you look for stuff. But do you know of any resources that people can access that's more, I guess, catered to our type of environment, our type of culture? Or does it matter?
3: I think it's a little hard to say, right? Because I think one of the one of the there's lots of good age appropriate Um, sometimes very funny because, you know, talking about sex can be a heavy topic. So you sometimes you have to infuse a bit of humor in there. There's really good information out there, but I think people are afraid that if I open this website, I might see something that I'm not supposed to see. So people just throw the whole website away. I think it takes you know, one or two people who just, you know, take it, take one for the team and go out there and really investigate because there's some really, really great governmental websites out there. There are lots of great um, resources. We have resources within our own community. Heart is one organization that focuses a lot on women and girls and they give great sexual health information. There are lots of homegrown nonprofit organizations that have sexual health information, but there's also, if you just Google sex, sex ed for a five-year-old, and, and I hate using the term sex ed because we're really not talking about sex, but that's, it's really physical health. But, you know, that's, that's the compartment that they put it in. There's some really, really great um, models out there. There's a book and I'm trying to call the name of it. I just bought it for my daughter. It's a book about puberty for girls ages seven to 12 and she's seven. She was completely embarrassed to even look at the book because it said puberty and she kind of has an idea of what puberty is, but it's such a fantastic book and it it speaks on her level. So it's a book that I read and I feel comfortable enough giving it to her and letting her go and read a chapter. And then we talk about it and discuss. So there, there are lots of good resources out there in terms of Islamic resources to be quite honest I have not found one that is comprehensive but I do have a mentee who is working on developing a curriculum that parents can use to talk to their children about sex.
2: That's really fantastic. I hope that that's somehow shared. We'll direct people to your um social media pages so that at least like if that resource does drop we can hopefully have access to it inshallah. But one thing in terms of like the stigma and how awkward this conversation can quite often be with families and parents. I think, like you said, us as ad- like right now, we're adults. We're all adults here. And we're at a point now where we're having these conversations with our as adults with our parents. And one way that I find that I could somehow normalize this is just sitting down and every once in a while having a talk with my mother about this so that she doesn't feel so awkward speaking to my younger siblings about it. And that's one thing that I'm doing. But what would you recommend? Like, How do you think we can try and overcome this stigma? Not not per se in terms of the community as a whole, but at least within our own households. How do we
3: overcome this issue? I think what you said is, is exactly what I would suggest. Just having the conversation, actually having the conversation, having those courageous, uncomfortable conversations across generations. So talking to your mother, talking to your grandmother, talking to... You know your friends normalizing the idea, especially for women, normalizing this idea of having these very private, delicate, and sacred conversations amongst women. That's why I started the Village Auntie because the Village Auntie is really a role. It's not just a, a title or a brand that I came up for, with for myself. Um, I have my best friend, uh, one of my closest friends, is from Hergesa, and so her mother will come and sit and she'd be speaking, you know, Somali. I don't understand what she's saying. And my friend would translate and we're all <laughs> sitting around the table and she's sharing things about, you know, use this kind of mask for your face. And when you're upset with your husband, you know, don't get mad. Just do this and it, and, and just that generative intergenerational conversation is how we will start to shift the paradigm in our communities and it's going to take people who are right in your age bracket because you're kind of in the middle you're not a young person but you're not you know old like me so you can have those types of conversations and let our elders know that it's okay because for a lot of them you know depending on their cultural background they come from a place where you just these are things you don't talk about these are things that are reserved for you know just the bedroom or just you know talking to your doctor But we have to have these types of conversations so that women, one, Know that whatever they're experiencing, they're not alone. And then two, once you start to normalize the conversation, when your younger sisters and you know younger cousins come up, it's no big deal to say, Hey, I got my period. And you're like, Oh, yeah, let's, you know, let's talk about it. Instead of like, oh my gosh, be quiet, you know, don't mention anything. We have to really normalize it because this is an important part of not only um growing up, you know, in this world, but it's also an important part of our dean. I always link it back knowing about sexual health also helps you to make sure that you're fulfilling your islamic responsibilities properly as well
0: and like i think we're slowly like Hafsa, i know you're saying that you're talking to your mom but i think we're slowly getting there because i know you know like uh, in in households i know when people get their periods they're very like hush hush about it and secretive about it and you like especially like during ramadan people will be like eating in like the washroom in or like secret. A closet yeah <laughs> and, and I feel like now like lately at least I've been noticing that people are a bit like obviously they're not going to be in your face but like they're more like comfortable in owning it and like it's okay to be on your period and it's okay if your brother knows and I know like some people whose brothers don't even know and parents are also lying like I've seen like sometimes someone will see me eat and then their mom will be like yeah like it's because she forgot to wake up for suhoor or something and it's like no that's oh, not why goodness. I'm not fasting and like <laughs> And like, and now you're telling, yeah, and, and like now you're telling this, this child that if they miss suhoor, then, you know, they don't have to fast. So it's just, I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the gymnastics that people need to go through to kind of hide certain things and that slowly, I think within our communities, we're kind of becoming more okay with talking about it. Obviously, we do have our limitations and, you know, we don't go as far as talking about sex, but, you know, I think the more we kind of, break that mold where i think we have hope what's
1: the worst part about that is the fact that if you keep it a secret then the next time someone goes uh, you know goes through the experience around you they're gonna be like i'm the only one going through this so they keep it a secret and so now everyone's living in secrecy going through things privately but not knowing what to do so it's like it's like a cycle that keeps repeating itself
3: it does you know in my household um and she's gonna she's here with me now at my office she's probably <laughs> gonna cringe when i say this but my daughter, she started her period. Uh Maybe like she's covering her face. Like maybe about a year ago. <laughs> They're done that. <though. laughs> uh, right. Um, and, and so she's 12. She has a sister who's seven. And I had to explain to her sister and to her older brother why she did not have to pray. And I said, you know, Yabi doesn't have to pray because when a woman is on her period, her body is still in service to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's still going through the process of doing what, it was created to do. And when we submit to Allah, when we worship Allah, then we are in service. This is what mankind was created for. So when she's on her period, this is something that, you know, Allah does not require a woman to, um, you know, make her salah. She cannot purify herself because she's you know, she's in a constant state where she's bleeding. And I'm, I'm just talking to them, just like I'm saying it to you. I said, so we, you know, when she's on her period, we want to make sure that, you know, you don't have, to, if she doesn't come for a salah, you know, don't, cause they were like, Yabi, I can't believe you didn't come and break my rib, right? And I said, you know, you know, she's, she, she's, she's, she's doing what she needs to do. And we also just want to make sure, like, if her mood swing or if she needs a little bit extra sleep, you know, we just give her that time. And so now they know that when, it's Yabi's time of the month. They know that like, they'll bring her snacks. Like her older brother will go to the store and buy her like, I don't know what kids eat, hot Cheetos and whatever, you know, stuff that she might be craving. And they really give her that space. So it's not only teaching my younger daughter and it's actually giving her something to look forward to. She's like, oh, mommy, when I start my period, can I wear a hijab? Can I do this? Can I do that? And it's also teaching my son, you know, inshallah, when he grows up and he gets married and he has daughters, this will also teach him how to treat his wife and how to treat his daughter. So it's something that benefits Everybody in the family, it's not just for the girl. Um, and it, you know, and people, I've had friends who cringe like, Oh my gosh, you know, you're invading her privacy, but she's very open about it. And we're very open about it because. You know, having your menstrual cycle is something normal. It's something totally fine. Like women go through it all the time. And if she's going to be living in this household with all of us, then we all should be sensitive to what each person is going through. If she had a cold, we would all, you know, be rushing to her aid. If she's on her menstrual cycle, we should all know that this is something that she's dealing with so that we know also how to deal with her. So that's, that's how we, how we've handled it in our family. And I think so far, um, is working pretty well. People would get surprised when I tell them I sent my little brother to go buy us like
2: pads or something. They're like, oh my God, your brother knows about your period. Like, <laughs> he lives in a household full of women. He should know. But, um, no, that's, that's something I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, as a community, as a whole, it becomes normalized and we overcome. But one thing that, you know, that is some, sometimes a little bit awkward to navigate and to speak about. And, you know, when people say this, people often roll their eyes or they're like a bit judgmental is, um, the fact that yes, once you go through puberty and you know, you're in those late teen, those teenage years, later teenage years, twenties, thirties, whatever age you may be, people then, you know, Yes, they want to get married or, or whatever, but part a huge part of that reason for wanting to get married is because they have desires that they want to fulfill. And, you know, the common advice that we always give is, oh, you know, you're not married yet. You need to control your desires. Go fast. Go pray. Go do this. And then when people give that advice, you get a lot of eye-rolling like and all of that. How do we deal with it if we seriously have a problem where controlling your desires are an issue?
3: So I've, I've answered this question on a podcast that I do um, in the UK, I get this question a lot, um, especially from young college age people like, you know, I'm tired of the imam, my mom, my uncle telling me to just fast. If I fast, you know, I'm going to just, not, I'm never going to eat for, for the rest of my life because the desire is so strong. And I'm like, you know, I get it, right? I get it because sexuality, the urge to want to engage intimately with another person can be very natural for some people. Some people, you know, are asexual. They don't have have that that urge. But for some people, like it's very, it's very natural. And so that's the starting point, right? First, it's not abnormal. It's totally normal to feel a certain way. It's totally normal to have certain sensations. It's totally normal to have certain desires. So that the desire in and of itself is not haram. It's how we enact that desire. So Islamically, the prescription is fast, right? But I think when we look at fasting, we look at fasting as fasting from food. One of the other things that we have to do is we have to limit our access to scintillating and and titillating and tantalizing imagery. Get off of Instagram, get get off of Netflix, stop listening to the radio because literally every 30 seconds you're bombarded with some type of sexual imagery. Um, You know, people scantily clad, the the music is very suggestive. If you are feeling that the urge is so strong, fast also from technology, fast from social media. Stop giving yourself access to things that are only going to increase your desire. And then what happens is it stops that script from turning so quickly. But you also have to do something with the the, the physical. Um, energy that is built up during desire libido is really vitality it's really life force it's, it's energy and so when you're feeling especially amorous or desirous you know it's like okay i have this strong desire i'm not married there's nothing that i can do with it you have to get it out some kind of way there's exercise there's running there's walking there's yoga do some jumping jacks do some do something to get that energy out of the body now if you do all of that, you're fasting from social media, you're fasting from technology, you're doing lots of car, you ran five miles, you walked up and down 10 flights of stairs. Is the desire going to still be there? Maybe. But it might be lessened and it might give you something else to channel that energy towards the more attention that we focus on it the more that it grows, it's it's not going to go away. It's going to be there, but what I find a lot of young Muslims do is they say, okay, well, I, you know, I have this strong desire, but you're talking to a boy in the DMs. You know, I have this strong desire, and you're watching <laughs> the new Megan <laughs> and, and Cardi B video. You know, I have this strong desire, but you're <laughs> on college campus, you leave in the MSA meeting, and you know, you go to the local pizza spot and everybody's, you know, got butt cheeks and whatnot hanging out, you know, so we also have to limit we also have to fast with our eyes with our mouths and with our ears as well as our stomachs it's not just about the food that you intake it's also about the imagery and things that you intake and i guarantee that if you do that it can at least weaken that desire a little bit because if if you know if the only reason that you're looking get into a relationship is so that you can quell that desire that's also a big danger sign you don't want to just you know rush into a relationship so you can quell that desire but you have to do something with that that energy that it generates
2: so um yeah one of the ways that people do kind of overcome it is that they run to the idea of marriage which like you said can be quite a selfish thing to do if the only thing Mm -hmm. you're you're getting married for is you know to fulfill that desire because that's not what marriage should be built on but Fair enough. But even after you get married and all of that, I do find that I've had friends... So I I work in a healthcare background and I've had friends come to me asking me questions... About you know marital relations and sex and all of that, and you know it seems like there's there's kind of an issue where people have really conflated ideas about what marriage should be and about what sex should be after getting married, and like there's a lot of confusion in that, or they they have a completely different idea so do you have any advice for newlyweds or people who are looking to get married about how to find out about things
3: you need find out before they get married or? After their, I, I would I would hope before. So I mean, I'm, you know, I'm always going to say I for women. I offer classes. You know, I'm, I'm always going to going to plug that. That's one of the things that I talk about. I think it's important to understand what Islam actually says about sex, um, particularly for the the women, because if you look at it and if you weigh it on a scale, women kind of you know edge out men in terms of sexual rights, and we don't really look at it that way. But you know, a, a, a man is required to provide pleasure for his wife sexually, like that, that is something that is incumbent upon the man. That's something that he has to really look to and see to. And if not, you know, there are certain cases where if if a husband cannot please his wife, that that could be grounds for divorce. Of course, that's an extreme, but just knowing that, like that shows how important, you know, if you don't do this thing, then a woman has a right to do this other act, divorce, which is highly detested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I think that's one thing, knowing the Islamic rights. The other thing is knowing as much as you can about your body and anatomy. Um, you can come to classes with people like me. Um, there's also a brother. He's a Muslim brother. He's a graduate of Al-Azhar. Uh, he's a researcher, Habiba Kande. Uh, he's out of the UK. He's a Nigerian, uh, brother and he, mashallah, is, has a fountain of wisdom and he has a book called The Taste of Honey. And I actually buy it for every newlywed couple within my circle. And I give it to them. And they say, well, what is this book? I say, just use it. And it goes through everything it gives you. Hadith, it gives you ayat from the Quran. It's, it's a book about Islamic sexuality and erotology. The other thing is set realistic expectations. Let me tell you something. Ain't nobody having swing from the chandelier sex on their wedding night. Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> That only happens in the movies. (laughs) It does not. Two things don't happen in real life. People don't have sex like they have in the movies and they don't have babies like they have in the movies. It's all theatrics. (laughs) Your sex life could be better than the movie. It could be quieter than the movies, but we have to get this idea out of our minds that we have to fit this Hollywood image of what love and romance should be because that will make it very disappointing. Setting realistic expectations, knowing that, listen... If y'all two are virgins on your wedding night, it's going to be a whole lot of figuring out that you're going to have to do. And that's okay. Being patient and having realistic expectations, I think, is extremely important, along with everything else. You know, having good background information. And I also recommend for people who are serious about getting married, you have to have a marriage tribe Like you have to have a group of people in your circle, who are married that you can reach out to for advice. You need people who are your age. You need people who are older than you. You need people who've been married a long time because then they can begin to be like mentors and they can model things for you. Now there's certain things that of course you're not going to share, you know, out of proper adab, but you want to be able to know again, like I'm not the only person. I always tell people, if you think, like the sex on your wedding night is the best sex that you'll ever have, then that means the rest of your marriage is just all downhill from there. But if you sit with with married couples, they'll tell you, "Oh no, it was terrible," or oh no, we fell asleep or you know just just this it it creates more of a grounding effect because right now um we have so much of a media presence in our daily lives that I think we've actually forgotten um what marriage is really for, and it's not really just about sex
0: Mm -hmm. and just to kind of piggyback off of what you just said about virginity something that we always hear come up you know in various communities is the whole hymen talk and people talking about you know like if your hymen's what is it broken or i don't know what the term is Mm -hmm. that people use Mm -hmm. for it but like a lot of us know that that's not that doesn't really equate to virginity. But if you could speak on that as well, mm-hmm. that'd be great.
3: So there's actually a really good TED Talk. Um, I'll have to find the name of it. If you if you go on YouTube and Google TED Talk Hymen, there's an excellent, excellent TED Talk that does a much better job um, than I can do on it. But the, the misconception about a hymen, and, and she uses this in, in the, the TED Talk video, the hymen is not like a piece of saran wrap. You know, it's not a piece of plastic wrap that that covers, you know, the vaginal opening. And as soon as, you know, this big, strong penis bursts through, like a gush of blood rushes out. <laughs> That's not how your body was created. The hymen is actually more like a scrunchie. And so what happens is when a woman um, does vigorous exercise, she could do horseback riding. She could be doing gymnastics. She could be doing um, bike riding. The hymen can then start to stretch. And that can cause bleeding so that when she has sex on her wedding night, maybe the hymen has stretched or expanded and then she does not bleed. Also, some women are born with a hymen that is already um, expanded. And so no matter how much she's penetrated, she will never bleed. The hymen, it stretches. It never breaks. It does not break at all. And in fact, I have a friend. uh, She said that she did not experience any bleeding during sex until 19 years after she was sexually active. So I, that is another part of that education. When I educate women about the female anatomy, we talk about the hymen because, you know, in lots of cultures across the continent of Africa, the Middle East, Europe, even here in America, you know, a bloody sheet is something, you know, that 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 is a sign after the wedding night that that she was a virgin, but that's not really a true test of virginity. There is actually no physical test that can be used to actually determine virginity and i know people will say no you can check this you can check that there is no test and this is something that i have spoken about extensively with doctors there and scientists there is no physical test that can determine virginity
2: and, you know, um, like just talking about virginity and in terms of being married and all of that, um, one of, one of the more difficult conversations or like one of the conversations okay. that I was kind of broaching with my, with my own, you know, mother and my friends and whatnot is that conversation about consent and, you know, consent when it comes to being, in a relationship and being married because you always hear these stories about how and you know or people like talk about you know um in, in an islamic standpoint you know you should never say no to your your husband if he asks you, you know to you know have sex or whatever it may be um and like it's a sin to do that and all of that so how do you kind of answer or like you know explain to people that that isn't necessarily the case and that consent is a really important aspect in islam too
3: so the first thing is consent is sexy right whether you've been married inshallah in october i will have been married for 16 years and my husband and i we still practice active consent um your spouse and and it's always it's always directed towards the woman if you you know if you deny your husband then the angels will curse you until morning like i heard that hadith before i became a muslim Um, but the woman also has rights upon her husband's body as well but the rights that your body has over you supersede all of those other rights. So if, you know, your husband is entering you and you've you expressed that you don't want that. Um, if your spouse is forcing themselves on you, people talk about marital rape a lot. I don't believe in the concept of marital rape because rape is rape period. So if you are engaging in um, non-consensual sex, Right. Then that is assault. Now, when it comes to Sharia, when it comes to, you know, Islamic legalities, there's lots of, of things that have to be considered. But the way that you get beyond that, right, the way that you can preempt that is having conversations during that courtship phase, having conversations outside of the bedroom about what consent looks like. When is it OK um, for us to 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 not have sex? You know what? How? How do you want that to be communicated? Why is it important? Because women often feel that sex is a duty that they owe to their spouse. I owe this to my husband to have sex with him. If I don't have sex with him, then it's bad. I cannot deny him. And you have, so you have women who I had a a client who came home from having a cesarean section and her husband wanted to have sex with her that same night. It was medically inadvisable for her to do so. And she wound up back in the hospital because okay. she's trying to fulfill this quote unquote religious obligation, which is not a religious obligation. This was a, this was cultural pressure on her. So she's allowing her husband. She did not want to have sex. He's forcing her. She, they have sex. She finally says, okay, they have sex. She winds up back up back in the hospital. So it's important to think about these things. And you have to think one thing that women we don't do often enough if is we don't request consent. We'll say, well, my husband will never agree to that. But did you ask? Did you communicate? Did you let him know? Maybe you don't want to be penetrated. Is there something else sexual that you all can do? You have to stop this idea that your body is just there for your husband to to use as his at his disposal without you your feelings even being considered. And there is a way to do that Islamically, there is a way to do that Romantically, even without it being seen as a rebuke, because that's, that's what a lot of people fear. They fear, oh, you shouldn't, you know, rebuke your husband. But this, it has nothing to do with a rebuke of the spouse. Maybe I'm just tired. Maybe I'm not feeling well. Maybe I'm sick. Maybe I'm angry with you. You know, you can't have, there are some instances where the husband is very abusive emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, financially abusive, not giving you proper money. And then when you go to the room at night, you're supposed to open yourself up to have sex with him. No. In that case, the right of him being kind to you supersedes his right to have sex. This is also um, why it's important that we truly understand our faith through an Islamic lens and not a cultural one, because there are so many of our cultures that will say the woman has to make herself available at all times. And Islamically, that's just, that's just not the case.
0: The thing is, I think, like you said, that it's cultural. And a lot of us grow up with sheikhs who, whenever they mention marriage, whenever they mention divorce, whenever they talk about any issues that relate to men and women, it always, like, I'll listen to them and just be infuriated because, like, they're... There, it's always for the men. Everything is for the men. I've we like Istaheh Hafsa and I all listened to this one fiqh of marriage series, and the entire thing centered around men. And a lot of times, these topics are around them, and it's always like, what do we do? How do we serve them? You know? And it's so so like mm-hmm. it. I think it creates an environment where, like, people think that that's kind of what Islam is, but it's only because we have men who do let culture kind of influence their khutbas or however they're relaying this Islamic information. And all the time, that's who we're hearing it from. Like, for me personally, this is, like, one of the first times I'm hearing, you know, like that. Like, I know women have rights in Islam because I know that about Islam, but I never really, like, hear and people that we look up to oftentimes talk about what our rights are and what our rights are in marriage and in divorce and you know in sexual relations we just never hear that so it's like refreshing to hear you know you talk about that and you know tell us this and i feel like we have a long way to go like as a community to learn what our rights are as women in islam but like right mm-hmm. now it's, it's just not, I
3: think. <laughs> It is. The thing is,
1: we have to go, uh, we have to actually specifically look for what are women's rights, because if you go to any lecture to do with marriage or sex ed or anything, it's centered around men. So this idea of women going into marriage thinking that they have to serve their husband, it's literally because the lecturers or the people they listen to say that so we're going into even if we do do our research and learn about things that's the education we're picking up on so it's kind of hard to find topics that are actually beneficial to us as women that let us serve you know the way we're supposed to but
3: that's why it's important that one a lot of the the chefs that talk about this shouldn't be talking about it like bro like if you're a, a a scholar of you know the fiqh of Imam Shafi, like talk about Shafi fiqh. Like do that. Like if you're a uh, a uh scholar of Quran like do some tafsir, do some exegesis but if you don't know anything about this like just be quiet because a lot of it, a lot of these brothers are imams shuyukh, a lot of them are talking out of turn and they really have no idea what they're talking about because if they truly looked at the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa he is the greatest romantic ideal that we have for a partner and he was not vicious towards his wives he was not oppressive towards his wives, he did not only focus on and his wife serving him. He was an example of serving his household. He was very much an integral part of his household. So a lot of these sheikhs just should not be talking about this, but this is also why we need more women to become students of knowledge, to go to Alania programs, to learn fix, to learn sharia, to learn all of these things so that we can then educate our sisters. Women have to regain our role as spiritual authorities, like a woman cannot be an imam, but a woman can be a sheikha, a woman can be an ustaza. a woman can have a halakha, a woman can do a lecture series. And it's the same base of knowledge, but because she's a woman, she has that experiential knowledge to know, hey, this is something that women need to know because this is something that's not taught. Because a lot of times it's not that The information is not there. They just skip over it. They pass over everything that is a right of the woman and only focus on the rights of the man. When in reality, we both have rights and they both should be taught equally. Yeah.
0: And when we're being only taught of their rights, it kind of just makes you think, like, what do I gain from this? Like, well, we were listening to a fiqh of marriage and I was just like, okay, so I gain... Nothing why why would I want to get married? I have more freedom and I love my life the <laughs> okay. way it is. Why would I want to put myself in that situation? And it's because they always do it from that lens and it's just kind of like, okay, it doesn't seem like a marriage would serve me in any way because I'm just serving a man and you know But yeah, we definitely need uh, more uh, female scholars to kind of be teaching it. Even when we're learning about Tahara, I feel like I learned more. I've seen some of your IGTV videos talking about ghusl and things like that. And we have some curious cat questions that we're going to go over that some people ask questions. But I feel like I've learned more from that than I've ever did in like fiqh of Tahara classes. So Angela, we brought um, the option to send in questions to our listeners uh, about anything
2: specific things they want to ask. And there were a couple of recurring themes. And one of those was about ghusl and and like Kran mentioned um, we noticed that you had like a series on that or like a video on that so one person asked um, as a black woman I only have to wash detangle and protectively style my hair once a week but once you're married I'm assuming uh, you have to wash your hair much more often for obvious reasons how on earth can you keep your hair healthy in these conditions I'm already struggling with my hair right now
3: <laughs> <laughs> I feel you um, <laughs> so, I, so I, I always preface these things by saying I don't make the rules Right. Mm -hmm. So these the rules of Islam, I don't make the rules. However, there are ways around it. And this is a bit controversial because I I had some sisters try to like get a fatwa against me for like giving this information. But there are ways around it. So um, in the video, one of the things that I show is if if you are a woman with highly textured hair, one of the things that you can do is as long as water can pass through with unhindered. And this is something that we went over thoroughly with my fixed teacher. She's a sister from Egypt. She's asked not to give her name. Um, with her teacher who was a scholar from Mauritania, as long as water can pass through, you could put something like a stocking cap over the head. With a stocking cap, literally the water passed through unhindered, there's no problem. It's not like making wudu through a hijab or jeans or anything like that. Stockings are very, very thin. They're extremely porous. What it does is it can hold the hairstyle together while allowing all of the hair to still be drenched. The scalp, from a Maliki perspective, because that's that's what I practice, that's what I study is Maliki fit. The scalp has to be wet. Sisters will still say, I don't want to wet my hair at all. You can also take three handfuls of water and you can pour them from the front of the head to the back of the head three times, making sure that the entire scalp is dampened and making sure that the water drips to the end of the hair there's no way around getting your hair wet when you make gusul you can also just stick what i do is i just put my whole head under the water you have to decide like what is more important my hairstyle or worshiping Allah in the highest state of purity i know that that feels oppressive to a lot of sisters which is why my teacher said, and she was a woman with highly textured hair. She said, "Okay, you can try putting something over to hold the hair together while it's wet, and then leaving it on while it's dry, so that at least the hair won't be frizzy." But you know, there's nothing that I can say that says, "Okay, well, just wet your hands and wipe them over your head." You can't do that because it's not a full ablution. That's the difference between wudu and ghusl. So you know, when you get married. A lot of sisters shift to a different type of hairstyle. Some sisters go to being natural. Some sisters wear their hair in cornrows because you don't have to remove all of the braids. Some sisters, you know, wear locks. There's lots of different things. But unfortunately, there's no way around um getting the hair wet. But if you look at that little video, it's it's a hack that sort of helps um, with with but still keeping you within the confines, within the guidelines of. Um, the fiqh of uh, Tahara.
2: So going into a couple of more of the questions, so there's a few questions about the stigma related to talking about sexual health and women's health and the whole subject in general. Um, We covered a bit of this but um, just to go over them, somebody asked, how are Somali people, and I think we could also generalize this to Muslim communities, so why are sorry, Somali people or Muslim communities um, so afraid to talk about sex when, you know, you do it when you get married, what difference does it make, basically? Basically. And another one is why sex so or shameful to talk about.
3: I think we can't answer that question without also talking about the influence of colonialism, the influence of the Victorian era, and how um, the British Empire in exporting its cultural ideals around the world really changed the social and cultural fabric of a lot of these societies. If you look deeply into Somali culture, and especially the culture of women, right? It's a very sensual culture, like all of the, the, the rituals of beautification, the dancing, all of this is a, it's a the clothing. It's a very sensual, very elegant, dare I say, at times, very sexy vibe that you get, but to display that publicly will be considered immodest. And you have to understand that black women, I don't care where you're from, you can be from Somalia, from South Carolina, from... Uh, I cry wherever you're from. You're from. Black women have been hypersexualized. And so one of the things that we do is we shift to the total opposite direction. So I don't want you to look at me as a hypersexual being. So now I'm going to become completely asexual. I'm not going to talk about sex. I don't want to hear about it. And that has permeated throughout generations because at some point it could have been a protective factor. You know, when you have these European forces that are coming in during the colonial era and they're raping women, they're taking women, they're sexually assaulting women, though that means that you have to start being a lot more guarded with what may be a natural expression of sexuality. And so we see that in Somali culture. We see it in Sudanese culture. We see it in Senegalese culture. We see it in Black American culture. It's, it's, It's something that is a global phenomenon with black people. We tend to play down this hypersexuality, especially when we're women. So then you add Islam on top of it. And you have this fetishization of Muslim women where I remember growing, you guys are, I'm probably old enough to be your mother, but (laughs) when I was little, you had Bugs Bunny cartoons and Bugs Bunny would have like a niqab on and he's belly dancing. And you know, this very sexual imagery of Muslim women. So, okay, I don't want you to look at me as a a sex symbol. So I'm going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum also. What we have to do is be able to come to a middle ground where we have proper places to discuss sexuality Proper places to explore sexuality, but still maintain a public face that is proper and according to proper Islamic adab. So it's a balancing act.
2: So this this second question made me laugh a bit, but it's it's a bit serious as well. Somebody said, "Uh, sex seems scary. Still, the first night seems horrific. Is it important for a man to please his wife? Sorry, is there even any pleasure when you're a virgin and having sex for the first time?" Yes, and yes.
3: Next question. No. <laughs> yes. Yes. It is important for a man to please his wife um, sexually. And there are so many uh, hadith, Um We'd have to do a whole um, khutbah just to talk about them. I highly recommend Habib Akande's book, uh, A Taste of Honey. And there are various hadith that talk about the importance of being gentle with your wife um the importance of foreplay. We can look at the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, and how even even when some of his wives were on their menstrual cycle, how he would still kiss them. Um, he still might fondle their breasts. Like this is what the Arabic says. I had one of my students, she Sent me a message. Uh, she had just left her class, her Arabic class, and they were talking about various ahadith. And in one of the hadith, it talked about how the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam he would kiss his wife and he would suck her tongue. Like this is what the Arabic translates to. She said, "I never knew that this was the translation." So Islam is extremely prescriptive about what the man is supposed to do to please his wife. And part of that is through embodying the characteristics and the behavior of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa Now, in terms of being a virgin, can you be a virgin and enjoy sex? The first time that you have sex, it can be painful. It depends on... Size it depends on lubrication. It depends on arousal because the more aroused you become, um, the the muscles of the vaginal cavity begin to relax, so it makes it less painful. But any time that you know you enter into an orifice with an object with a body part that has never entered of that size before, there can be some level of discomfort. But the pain and pleasure centers are very, very closely aligned. So, you know, black people in America, we have a a saying, you know, it hurts so good. Right. There's there's an element of pleasure that can also exist in pain. But that's why it's important to engage in foreplay, because. This is why Islam is such a complete way of life. Allah did not leave anything out because what the foreplay does is it helps to provide that relaxation. It helps to provide that release of hormones that allows everything to relax so that the sex can become more pleasurable. It can be be, you know, painful the the first time, maybe even the first few times, but that's why it's important to have um a husband who is gentle and can make that experience um less burdensome
0: so someone sent this in hey y'all i'm not getting married anytime soon or anything but i want to ask this for future reference so say you have someone you want to spend the rest of your life with but you want to you want both of you to get tested for stds before getting married and being intimate how would you even bring up this conversation without offending the other person do you even think it's necessary i'm not sure if it's normal for people for people to ask their spouse to be to get tested or if i'm just crazy or overthinking it i don't care to know about their history or anything like that as long as they've repented and moved on i just want to know i don't have to worry about my health also from an islamic standpoint talking about sex even before nikah would feel very wrong so i'm not sure how you would approach this thank you so much if you answer this and can't wait for the new season so thank you so much to whoever sent in that question um i think it's an important question
3: that is a Beautiful question. Whoever sent that question in, um, it was elegantly worded and it's such an important question. I work in public health. I work in HIV and STD testing, treatment and management. And I can tell you without a doubt that I have seen an uptick in the number of young Muslims who are coming in to be tested for HIV and STDs. Listen, What they said is absolutely correct. I don't need to know about your past history, but I need to know if we're safe. There used to be a time and in some places you still have to get a blood test before you can get a marriage certificate. Muslims should get a full STD panel. I don't care if you say that you have never had sex because there are some things that you can get without having ever been penetrated, without having ever had sex. The only way to get HIV is not through sexual transmission. The only way to get certain other um, sexually transmitted infections does not have to be through penetration. There's also the idea that, that people are, um, engaging in non penetrative sex acts. So I have a student who contracted gonorrhea. She had never had penetrative sex before, but her boyfriend, she was, you know, manually giving him pleasure and he ejaculated in an area that was close enough and she got gonorrhea. I'm not going to go into too much of a detail. And the doctor said, this is why it's important that you, if if there is a fluid that can pass through an orifice, you have to be careful. So one of the things that I recommend and I have offered this service to young Muslims. If you want to get tested, I will come to your house and test you. They have home testing programs now. They have public health clinics that you can go to. It's something that I asked of my husband. And he was totally offended. And I said, bruh, listen, I'm taking this test and I want you to take this test too because I want us to start off our relationship knowing that we both have a bill of health that shows that we don't have any infection so that we're starting off fresh, just me and you. This is not something I'm asking you to do. This is something that I'm doing. And I think this is a great thing for us to do together. And I think if you talk about it from that standpoint, like I care about you enough that I want our relationship to be as healthy and productive as possible. Let's do this thing together. If you do it from that standpoint, it takes the sting out of it. And and listen, it's just something that should be done. If you are over the age of 18, you should be getting certain types of routine testing. Now, someone is gonna say, well, if you're a virgin, there's no need. Okay, again, that's fine. It should still be something that you normalize. It should be a part of, because most states now, most states do opt out testing. So when you get pregnant and you go in and they take all of your blood for your blood test, they're testing you for HIV anyway. So why wouldn't you want to know the status of of the person who's your potential spouse? I think that's excellent. And it's extremely important that it happens. We even used to do HIV testing at one of the massage here in Phoenix. I used to go and I would do testing for the premarital couples.
0: I think that's amazing. I wish it was I wish it was more common. I know in the Middle East it's kind of uh, before you get married, you have to get tested. Yep. I, I wish that was more you. common. You know, there you have to. I wish it was more common in the West. Um and then you know that would kind of take away the stigma cuz it's something you have to do by law. <laughs> but I think mm-hmm. it's for sure something that uh, everyone should do just to be safe uh, irrespective of, you know, whether you're a virgin or not and just piggybacking
2: off of that one thing that you know a a lot of people have questions about is pap smears now um you people usually you know do pap smears to rule out for human papillomavirus and you know because that could be a cause of cervical cancer and all of that but the um and they usually do it at a certain age in most countries as like a routine test but lots of people tend to opt out because you know Oh, I'm a virgin. I don't want anything in that in that direction or anything up there or I don't I don't want to be, you know, cuz to do a um, a pap smear, you kind of have to it's it's full on to get that examination done. So, how do you what do you recommend? Do you think that, you know, yeah, it's fair enough wait until after you've had sex to consider doing a pap smear or should you do it anyways?
3: A pap smear is not going to take your virginity. All they stick up there. The only thing they stick up there is something that looks like a long Q-tip. That is not going to take your virginity. And, you know, when women say, oh, I, I bleed. Sometimes you can bleed when you have a pap smear. There's slight spotting because sometimes your cervix can be enlarged. This is why it is so important. I got my first pap smear when I was sixteen. I was nowhere. I ain't and boy ever even kissed me. I wasn't Muslim, so I, I did not become a Muslim until I was age uh, age of twenty three. But I was sixteen. I looked like a twelve year old. I didn't have a boyfriend. There was nothing. There was nothing sexy about me. But my mother, you know, having you know, my mother had cervical cancer. When she was younger, and this was something that was very important for her. She wanted us to make sure that we had good reproductive health. So she took me and I had the pap smear. The pap smear is not going to take your virginity. And it is extremely important because... Pap smears don't just, they don't just test for things like STDs and STIs. They can tell you, for example, if your uterus is tilted, right? So I have an inverted uterus. My uterus is tilted backwards. And so when I learned that at the age of 23, even though I didn't get married until I was 29, my doctor told me, listen, when you want to have a baby, these are the, the positions that you're going to need to use. You know, this is why it might be a little bit difficult. So don't, don't worry if you're not able to get pregnant easily. And I was able to use the information that I got when, you know, when it came time for me to want to conceive. So pap smears are extremely, um, important. They test, um, lots of different fluids that you have in the body. Um, they, they test to make sure, you know, if you have any press lumps. the whole, not just the pap smear, but the whole exam, the well woman exam is something that you should, you should absolutely start having really from the time that you're about, um, you know, When you start your period, maybe because I mean, that might be a little bit young. But if you're a woman in her 20s. You should absolutely be having um, a regular pap smear. It's so important. It's very important.
2: Just speaking on the topic of, you know, doctor's appointments and whatnot, um, we had a couple of questions about contraception as well. Um, So the first question was, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, This topic is avoided like the plague in our community, so I wouldn't even know who to go to about this. My question is about... um, can you guys talk about birth control and contraception in Islam? We learn about this stuff in school from a Western and secular standpoint, but parents will never talk to us about it because we're just supposed to know these things automatically or something. I'm being dead serious when I say I don't even know if condoms or birth control are haram.
3: Um, okay. So the birth control question is a little bit sticky because um, some people don't like my answer to it. And what I will say is that if you're using a form of birth control that is not readily seen, um, that is not a temporary form of birth control. This should be a conversation that you have with your spouse. I understand that some women are in abusive relationships and they do not want to get pregnant because it will increase the abuse or it will not allow them to escape the marriage. I am not talking about women in those situations, right? So if you're a woman who goes and gets an IUD or you take birth control pills because you don't want to get pregnant because you know you're going to leave your husband or you don't want to get pregnant because when your husband when you're pregnant, you know, your husband violently beats you or berates you or something like that. Those are absolutely exceptions. So I want to preface what I'm going to say with that. I understand that birth control can be a difficult situation for some sisters. Generally speaking, um, birth control in and of itself is not haram as long as it is arrived at by a mutual decision by both people within the relationship. It's the same thing for men. A man should not go and get a vasectomy um, where he is, you know, not able to sire children without telling his wife that that it's it's not just for women. It's also for men. But in terms of birth control, I think heart um, heart to grow on Instagram. They do a great job of talking about the different forms of birth control. So you have condoms. You can absolutely use condoms. There's nothing wrong with using condoms. Uh, you can use birth control pills. They have birth control pills um, that are hormonal um, birth control pills. Some people like that. Some people don't. You have, and so those are temporary. A condom, you use it once. Birth control, you're taking one pill a day. If you forget, then you know you lessen the chance of its um, efficacy. Then you have things that are more permanent, like an IUD. So an IUD would be a T-shaped, either copper or a silicone device that's um, implanted uh, right. It rests right up against the cervix, and what it does is it prevents. Um, The motility of the sperm. um, And and so the the egg cannot be fertilized. There are lots of other things that have implants They have lots of other things that can be used as contraceptive foam. Um, I don't think they make sponges anymore, but sponges used to be an option. But um, birth control is available, but it's a conversation that you should have with your partner. You know, if if you get married and your husband's like, I want to have children right away, but you don't want to have children right away. Then that means that's something you should have talked about in the premarital stage. I I always when I counsel couples, I always ask them, how soon do you want to have children? If she says eight years and he says eight months. That's a problem. Then you need to have a birth control conversation. But I'm not I'm not a fan of uh, sisters. Taking birth control and not letting their husbands know because I would not be a fan of a man going and having a vasectomy and not letting his wife know. It's, it, 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 it can be a form of deception. But again, if there are these, you know, extreme cases where there's abuse, then that's different. But generally, as long as it's something that the couple decides upon mutually, um, and it's not harmful to the person physically, then there's no, there's no need to, you know, not do it.
2: So, um that was a very thorough and in-depth episode i think we've recorded a little over an hour but it was much neat it was a much needed talk and we really do appreciate you coming on for it angelica yeah so just to conclude we do have one last question as like you know a goodbye point what where, where can a grown person so all of us here we're all in our uh mid to late 20s what would you advise someone for at in our age group where do we start when we're talking about sexual education and you know learning more about this specific topic you recommended a book by Oh, I forgot the name. Habib Akande. Habib Akande, yes. So we'll definitely look into that. But do you have any other recommendation for any other recommendation? Sorry for resources that we can look into.
3: Sure, I'm. I'm going to be very self-serving, and I'm going (laughs) to say, watch one of my videos, but then talk about it with your friends. Set up a WhatsApp group, a Zoom call. Even if you say, I don't know what that lady was talking about, she must be crazy normalize having these types of conversations, the same type of conversation that we're having right now. Normalize having those types of conversations within your friend group, Uh, because there's going to be at least one of you who says, I'm going to go out and try to find some more information. And there's so much information out there. So I highly suggest. Um, Habib Akande, he has an Instagram and Twitter feed. I highly suggest Heart on Instagram. They uh, Instagram and Twitter, they're at Heart to Grow. Um, there are also lots of other um, sex educators out there. There's Ifet Rafiq, who is a sister who is in the UK. She focuses a lot on um, the South Asian community, but she has excellent resources. Um, you have at the Halal Sexpert. Um, that's the sister who is creating a curriculum for parents to talk to their children. So we're out there. Um, there are Black Muslim sex educators, um, South Asian Muslim sex educators out there who are doing the work. But the key point is making sure that you have friends that you talk about it with, um, because that means that you're starting to normalize conversations and nobody feels that they're navigating this alone.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. And again, just to plug in your socials, um, you can find Angelica on Twitter or Instagram at Village Auntie. Um, take a look at those videos we recommended. Let's all chat to our friends and, you know, continue this conversation. And if you'd like to ask us any uh, further questions or you want to add your two cents in about our discussion today, please feel free to, um, add us on Twitter or Instagram at bond Podcast. You can also DM us or email us at abuan chronicles at gmail.com. And if you want, would like to keep things a bit more anonymous, please send us a question on Curious Cat, which is curiouscat.me forward slash abuan podcast. Again, thank you so much for joining us and assalamu warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.